Amen. Let's get our Bibles out and open to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, page 1343 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We are in part 3 of this series that I'm calling Clarity, where we're going to spend a few weeks looking at various facets of salvation. And uh, as I told you last week, there's a very strategic and specific, well, there's actually three strategic and specific reasons why uh, we're having this conversation in this Sunday night setting. Uh, Remember, I said last week, the first reason is because uh, the discipleship of true believers is enhanced as they see the glory, beauty, and depth of their own salvation, in that God will give you opportunity to disciple those who are young in the faith, and you will uh, need to be able to bring them to the depth and beauty of their own salvation where they'll be able to uh, just glory in the Lord and become the person God created them to be. Also, the second reason is is that there's an absolute certainty that each and every one of us knows at least one person who confesses Christ but is yet unconverted. Maybe at least one person who confesses Christ whom we're uncertain about or concerned about. And usually that's the first uh, uh, indication that there's a problem or maybe that we need to have a conversation. The third reason is that the greater our understanding of the miracle of salvation, the greater our passion will be to see the lost saved. And so that's why a conversation like this is very important in a setting like this where most of you are... uh, at various degrees of maturity in the Lord. So, let's pray and ask God to help us. And we'll continue in our passage we started last week and uh, pull the rest of the truths out of it with regards to salvation. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we study. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And God, we want to confess our uh, utter desperation and need tonight for You to minister to us through it, Lord God. We pray that You will use this living and active word to just penetrate our hearts. God, we need you to give us ears to hear and prepare us to receive that we might bring you glory. Thank you for what you will do in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight what I want us to do is I want us to begin by contrasting two things. Let's think about a prom and a wedding. Now, I probably know more about this than I wish I did, but a prom, this is how it rolls in my house. You plan, let me rephrase it, they plan, they prepare, they buy a dress, maybe rent a tux, there's discussion about food, there's discussion about Who will go? There's discussion about transportation, how they will go, uh, all the various um, components of the big event. When the event is over, everything goes right back to the way it was before, except for the dent in Dad's wallet. So just FYI, if any of you needs a prom dress, I have an entire collection of them at my house. Then we'll think of a wedding. A wedding, you plan. 
A wedding, you prepare. A wedding, you buy a dress. You rent a tux. A wedding, you have a discussion about the food. A wedding, you have a conversation about the transportation and the location and where things are going to be. The difference is, is that when the event is over, everything is different and never returns to the way it was. Now, the position that I'm taking tonight is that far too many people are treating salvation like a prom. You see, here's the problem. This concept of salvation where a person comes to faith in Christ and then somehow leaves that event and goes back to life as normal, as usual, is simply unknown to the Scripture. It's not in the Bible. You see, the first problem with this whole thinking is that salvation is somehow man's endeavor. In other words, to treat salvation like an event is to understand salvation as some humanistic, man-centered endeavor. And how we treat salvation has absolutely no bearing on the essence and nature of what salvation genuinely is. Now, that's important. You have to understand that. The way that we treat salvation, our idea of salvation, no matter how correct or incorrect it may be, has no bearing on the true nature and essence of what salvation is because salvation is not a man-centered endeavor. So think of it this way. If you treat a lion like a house cat, it's still a lion. If you treat a lion like a house cat, it has no bearing on the nature and essence of the lion, but it does put you in great peril. If you treat salvation like a prom, it has no bearing on the nature and essence of salvation, but it puts you in great peril. This is why it's so important for us to understand these uh, beautiful pictures of salvation that Scripture gives us. Now, we're in Ephesians 2. Last week, we began in verse 1. We'll begin in the same place, and we'll just move through this passage together. Let's begin Ephesians 2, verse 1. The Scripture says, "...and you He made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, the first three verses of Ephesians 2 answer the question of why we need salvation. Then Paul begins to press deeper. We got into some of this last week. Look at verse 4. And think in terms of prom versus wedding as I read this. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, 
because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show His exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, does that sound more like a prom or like a wedding? For example, the phrase in verse 5, that even when we were dead in trespasses, He made us alive. Does that sound like an event? Does that sound like a, a, a single moment in time and then we, we died again? Or do we continue forward in the, in the change, in the transformation that comes? Or what about in verse 6? He made us to sit together in the heavenly places. Was that just a momentary experience where we all got to sit in the heavenly places? And then when that was over, we returned back to where we were. Is this an ongoing change? Is it an ongoing experience? What about verse 7? That in the ages to come, in other words, we're stretching now. But Paul's saying in the, in the ages to come, he might show. So clearly this isn't a moment in time. Clearly this isn't a, 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 a one-time experience whereby our life would then return back to the way it was if in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So clearly, clearly, this is a change that is permanent and lasting forever. Now, is there such a thing as saving faith that does not produce lasting change forever? That's really not a rhetorical question. It should have been a resounding no. There's not. Let me remind you what James says in James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 14, familiar passages, but helpful in this discussion. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? That's the question James presents. Well, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, interesting that the question is, can faith save him? That's the question. And then James immediately goes into this scenario by which Action is involved. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give him the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you, do you want to know, O foolish man? Do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Do you want to know? Or do you just want to live in this 
state of blindness or, or some manufactured oblivion so you don't have to deal with it, so you don't have to face it, so you don't have to... Because what happens is when we start having discussions like this, it makes us all uncomfortable. Because it begins to examine our own lives and examine our own hearts. But at the same time, our minds begin to run with, with other people and other situations and other circumstances and things that our flesh doesn't want to address or deal with. You see... When you're having a conversation about salvation, I think if I were to just answer the question, you know, if you ask me, Pastor, well, why, where did, where did we go so wrong? How did the salvation doctrine train get off the tracks? I would say if I were feeling kind and generous, I would say, it's just a lack of diligence in looking at the Word of God. You have to pay attention to the words of God. You have to pay attention to every word. For example, prepositions here matter. You see, we're not, we're not saved by our works. We're saved Four good works. Look at verse 10 in Ephesians 2. Look at the last verse in that passage. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. His poema. His masterpiece. His creation. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by works, but we are Saved for good works. And that's a very important distinction that we have to know. So James comes along and he says, well, if you say you have faith, but there are no good works produced by that faith, then clearly your faith is counterfeit. It's wrong. It, it's false. It's dead. It doesn't exist. To which modern Christianity would push back. And what? Will the pushback always be? Always. 100% of the time. Experiential. It'll be a prom. Somebody will say, no. I made a profession at a camp. I signed a card. I came forward. I got baptized. I did a this. I did a that. In other words, I went to the prom. I went to the prom. I'm saved because I went to the prom. No. You're not saved because you went to the prom. Because salvation's not a prom, it's a wedding. Whatever the event, whatever the experience is, that whenever you push back, whenever you say, no, no, there must be good works. There must be viable, visible, tangible change. There must be. There simply must be. On so many levels... Trying to take that out just is simply, it's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible to think that the great God of the universe would set up 
a temple inside of you and somehow that would go unnoticed. It's just utterly ridiculous. So let's talk for a moment about counterfeit faith. Two types of counterfeit faith, both interwoven together. So actually, I was having a conversation with Matt while we were at, uh, at that conference a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we were having a conversation about this very thing. And uh, he said something that got me thinking. And so here we go. Two types of counterfeit faith. Number one, verbal faith. Notice what James says in James 2.14. What does it profit a man, my brethren, if someone says? They say. In other words, verbally, they're proclaiming that they have faith. That they make this verbal, uh, trying to give us verbal assurance that they're saved. You see, here's the problem with that. The problem is, is that words cannot save you. The sinner's prayer cannot save you. It's not in the Bible. You know that? And it, it won't save you. It's the heart of the person behind the, the, the words. It's the intention of the person. And it's the work that proceeds that of the Holy Spirit. It's the drawing of the Lord. I mean, it is a God-accomplished endeavor. The, the, the reason verbal faith can't save you is because if it could, then that must mean there's some, there's some formula. There's some abracadabra thing that you can say that's going to make you saved, when in fact that's utterly and completely not true. So James says, if someone says they have faith, well, no. But then... Woven into what James is saying is the second mark of counterfeit faith, and that is intellectual faith. Look at verse 19, James chapter 2, 19. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Now, this is a, a little more interesting to me because the, the word believe tangles people up a lot. That word believe causes all sorts of fretting and frustration in this conversation. Well, first of all, and again, it's just a failure to pay attention to the words of God. For example, Acts chapter 16, verse 31 says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. So somebody might say, well, wait, now wait a minute. James says that you believe, well, big deal, the demons believe. But then in Acts chapter 16, the Bible says, if I believe, then I'm saved, me and my household. John 3, 16, whosoever believes in him will be saved and not perish, right? I could go on and on and on. Does the Bible contradict itself? Is there an error that we have just exposed? Words, words. James 2.19 says, You believe. You believe what? You believe that there is one God. You believe that there is one God. Congratulations. Demons have the same belief as that. The fact that you say that there is one God, I believe that. Great. 
Acts chapter 16, verse 31, on the other hand, says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3, 16 says, believe in. In other words, there's no faith component in believing that. You understand? I can believe that the the world is flat. Big deal. I can believe that it's square. I can believe that anything's true. But I'm not putting my faith in it. I'm not, I'm not putting my life on the line. But when I'm believing in something, when I'm believing on something, then there's a faith component in that. Then I'm putting, I'm putting myself in that, on that, upon that. You see the difference? And really, we cannot have this conversation without, uh, Look into the, the quintessential passage, which is Matthew chapter 7. We probably will have to reference this passage in every single one of these messages in this series because it's just impossible to get around it because it's the most profound teaching on this subject in all of Scripture, in my opinion. So Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But, again, look at the words But who will? But he who does. He who does. He whose faith has good works. He who has been saved for good works. He who does the will of my Father in heaven. But many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Wait a minute. Verbal faith. Lord, Lord. Did we not? Have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then the Lord says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, what you have here is a mini dissertation on false faith. Everyone in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 believes that there is one Lord because they addressed Him as such, did they not? They have the same faith as the demons. Their problem is, is that they have verbal faith and maybe intellectual faith. You see, here's the, here's the question we ask. We're having a conversation with someone and we maybe just un, not intending to sort of go off the rails, but we will ask them a question like, Do you know God? Which is not necessarily a bad question, but it's really not the question we need to ask. The question is not, do you know God, according to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and following. What is the question? Does God know you? Now, now look at what it says. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. He doesn't say, you never knew me. Depart from me. He said, I didn't know you. The question is not, do you know God? The question is, does God know you? You understand? Think about this for a second. I know who the governor is of the state of Mississippi. I can go around Gulfport, and I can knock on doors, and I can tell people all sorts of things about Governor Phil Bryant that he's decreed to do and declared to do, and that I'm a representative on his behalf. And I can say all sorts of things about 
Governor Phil Bryant. The question's not, do I know who the governor of Mississippi is? Does the governor of Mississippi know me? No, he doesn't have a clue who I am. But I can go around and say all sorts of things in his name, but that doesn't have any bearing on him. That doesn't make it legitimate or real or true, now does it? So what we have here is we have people who are running around, who believe that there's one Lord, address Him Lord, Lord, run around doing all these things in His name, but He doesn't even know them. They're strangers to Him. You see, they're, they're, they're unconverted. They're lost. Because salvation is not a prom, it's a wedding. It's not an event. What does Jesus say in verse 21 of Matthew 7? He says, I mean, I'm telling you, we could... There's, there's sermon after sermon after sermon in these three verses. Not everyone, I mean, just you got to get in the wording... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who declares that I am the one and only God, not everyone who does that will what? Shall enter the kingdom. Now that's very important. Shall enter the kingdom. Jesus doesn't say, not everyone who finds the kingdom. Not everyone who locates the kingdom. You see, finding the kingdom is an event. I found the kingdom. Locating the kingdom is an event. I found out where it is. I know where it is. That's a moment. Entering the kingdom is not an event. Because when you enter the kingdom, then what? It doesn't go back to the way it was. Why? Because now you're in the kingdom. It's different. You're in the kingdom. And so what happens when you're in the kingdom? Now, let's think, let's think about this for a second. What happens when you're in the kingdom? Do you just come to Christ? There's a moment of salvation and it's an event and that's all. And now I'm in the kingdom and then I'm just the same. Everything's the same, but I'm just in the kingdom. Oh, no, no. What does the Bible teach? Everywhere Jesus talks about the kingdom. You could back up just a few verses where he says in verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Very interesting. What is that word for way? Broad is the way. What is that? It's road. It's path. That's what that word means. So in the kingdom, when you enter into the kingdom, what's in the kingdom? There's a road. There's a path. There's a, there's a, a narrow path. There's a narrow road in the kingdom. That once you enter into the kingdom, there's a, a road that leads you somewhere that you've been saved unto good works, which he has laid out beforehand. That there's something going on in the kingdom, right? It's not just that we, in this 
moment of signing a card or, or making some public decision or going to camp or whatever the case may be, that there's this just this moment in time and I'm going to hang my eternity on this moment in time. But then all the rest of this time, you know, my life just looks very much like it used to look. And then somehow we can, we just you know, deceive ourselves and rationalize this and make this somehow look sensible. You know, like, well, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I just haven't been, you know, I, I'm a slow learner. I, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time. I'm, and it just drags along and along and along and there's, there's no victory over sin. There's no transformation. It's just sort of this, meandering along, and then before you know it, your life just slowly whittles back to exactly the way it used to be. I mean, I have conversations with people who are utterly and completely disconnected, out of fellowship, not in church, have no spirituality whatsoever. And they, they look me in the eye and say, well, I'm saved because I did this. And I think, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? I don't think you really believe that. That's so preposterous. I don't think you really believe that. And of all the places in your life to self-deceive, that's the last place I want to be self-deceived. See, we, we enter into the kingdom. What, what, is that, what is that like? What's entering into the kingdom like? Is it like, uh, is it like, hey, I got into college. I got accepted. Got my acceptance letter. I'm in. No. You know, you, when you get the acceptance letter, that's not a degree. You know that, right? You have to go to class. You actually have to do the work. You have to go through the process, right? You don't just enter into the kingdom and go, ta-da, here I am. Right? I mean, is that not... Just common sense, right? In other words, somebody says, hey, guess what? What? Tell me. I got the job. But you got to go to work, you know. You can't just get the job and then that's it. You have to... Getting the job entails going to work. Acceptance into school entails going to class. In other words, entrance into the kingdom entails... Walking the road in the kingdom. I mean, it, it simply wouldn't make any sense any other way. What, what, what are we... How could it be? How could it be? Here I am in the kingdom, but everything else looks the same. Impossible. Impossible. The kingdom of heaven, according to John the Baptist... Is at hand. We're done. We're not talking about the kingdom of anything else. We're not talking about the magic kingdom. We're not talking about some silly ears. We're talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We're going to go into, we're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but it's going to look like the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of this life. It's going to be, it's going to be so 
such a subtle, private, inside change that you would, you would have to know me very, very intimately and closely to be able to see the difference. That's ridiculous. Jesus says, again, I'm just on words, man. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 4, follow me and then you'll just be yourself. Follow me and everything's going to stay the same. Follow me and there's not going to be any discernible difference in your life. Follow me and all of the the external relationships, your priorities, your, I mean, all of your habits, everything about your, it will all be, don't worry. It's not going to change. I mean, don't you want to go to heaven? <laughs> yeah, I want to go to heaven. But I want to make sure I get there. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. You're not, you, you may, it's not, you know, and I might, I could, you have the opportunity. Follow me and there's the chance for a promotion to fishers of men. Or is it, he looks at the, his future disciples and he says, follow me. What he's saying is you follow me and everything that you know is going to radically be turned upside down. Because they're fishermen. And so how is it for you and for me that it's going to be some different thing? Whatever you are, when you follow Him, whatever that is, is going to be turned utterly upside down. Your priorities, the way you structure your life, the way you think and perceive the world around you is going to be utterly different. And if it's not, I would be very, very concerned. Because basically... You've got a roaring lion in your house that you're trying to treat as a house cat and it's not going to go well for you. I mean, yeah, it'll eat meow mix for a day or two. But then it's going to eat something else. Because the essence and the nature of salvation is unscathed by our opinion or ideas or presuppositions, it doesn't change. It is what it is what it is. And so what we have to do is we have to bring our understanding to bear on the anvil of the Word of God according to what is the doctrine of salvation. You see, you have to... you You have to... Conform to this. This will never conform to us. It's a one-way street here. Remember, it's a, it's a narrow road, but it's a glorious one. All right, one more passage. I thought we'd chew on some of our favorites tonight. Romans chapter 8, everybody's favorite passage, beginning in verse 28. These will come up on the screen. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Man, we love that. That is so good. 
So good, so good, so good. But boy, we stop right there, don't we? We just, we go, that's so good. Let's just take that in for a while. I mean, I, I don't know what's coming next, but man, that's good. Let's just stay right there. We just kind of pull off the road, that little lookout point and go, I think we've gone far enough. No, you got to keep driving. Verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, now we got the old predestined word in there and foreknew, and I'm getting a headache just thinking about that. Verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these also he called. Oh, whom he called, these he justified. Oh, it's getting theological. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, yes, all things work together for good. And those who love God and are called according to his purposes, absolutely they do. Isn't that wonderful? And you know what else is wonderful? That God, in His perfect sovereign knowledge and unchangeable character and perfect will and execution of all things, the One who is powerful and perfect enough to make Romans 8.28 true is also the One who foreknew, and those he foreknew, he predestined to what? Be conformed to the image of his Son. You see, here's the theological problem with everything I've been talking about. Is that this whole prom idea of salvation is an attempt to bring justification in, but exclude sanctification. It's this idea that somehow I, I want to be forgiven of my sin. I want to be declared righteous by a holy God so that I can go to heaven. But I don't want to be made into His image. I don't, want to, I don't want to press through the narrow road and walk down that narrow path that leads to sanctification. I don't want that. I want the justification without the sanctification. And somehow I'm going to leapfrog from justification over here to glorification. And Paul's saying, no, you're not going to do that. That's going to be impossible. And here's why. Because for those he foreknew, he predestined that they'd be conformed into the image of his son. That sanctification is unavoidable. It's inescapable. It's predestined and foreknew. It's built into the character and nature of God. What Paul's saying is that when you become a Christian, when the God of the universe sets up in your body, when He dwells within you, you will be conformed into the image of His Son. And if that's not enough, those whom He's going to conform, those whom He's predestined, who He's called, those He justified, and whoever He justifies, He's going to glorify. That you can't Take a piece out of the puzzle. Sanctification is always followed by... Sanct- I mean, justification is always followed by sanctification, which is always followed by glorification. It is what it is what it is. Once you are saved, you are put on a path of being conformed into the image of God's Son. It's unavoidable. It's, 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 it, it just is because that's how God operates. It doesn't look the same in everybody's life, but it happens. 
It just is. And that everyone who's justified is glorified. Meaning that, that you, you, you don't come partially through salvation and then somehow fail the test and then get booted out of the program. When you're in, you're in. The problem is, are you in? That's what we're talking about. Are we in? So Paul ends in Ephesians 2 by just really saying something so remarkable by drawing our attention to the fact that in verse 10, we're his workmanship. We're his poema, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One final thought. If in Christ we're His workmanship, if just that statement alone is true, what does that mean? Let's say, for example, that you were a famous, world-renowned artist. And that you painted paintings and sold them for thousands of dollars. And so I came to you and I was observing some of your paintings, your masterpieces, your workmanship. And I said, you know, you have some beautiful work here. You are definitely gifted. You have real talent and skill. It's quite astonishing what you're able to do. You say, thank you. I appreciate that. So I have a proposal for you. I've I've got an idea. I think I'd I'd like us to work together. Okay, what do you mean? Well, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I think I'm going to paint some stuff. And then we're just going to write your name at the bottom of it and sell it. How about that? How's that going to go over? I mean, you've never seen me paint. But it does look like a third grade finger painting. But do you think that some famous artist is going to let somebody slug a few globs of paint on a canvas and then sign his name to the bottom of it? Well, of course they're not. Well, the Bible declares that you are his workmanship. In other words, that statement alone tells me that God has put His reputation as God on the line in you. So if you think for one second that you are going to be His workmanship and fail to accomplish His plan, fail to, if you think that that he is signing his name to the bottom, but it's dependent on your ability to paint, do you think he's declaring you are my workmanship based on your ability to make yourself look good? No way. He is the master. He's the potter. You're the clay. He takes us and he molds us and shapes us the way he will. And when he says, this is my poema, that means my name is on this. And by golly, I can promise you one thing. I will glorify myself in this life. 
You see, you, you don't, you can't just decide midstream that conformity to the image of his son is not part of your plan. You, you don't have time. You're not interested in that. No, it doesn't work that way. I mean, you can try that. But if you're genuinely converted, we'll talk about in a few weeks just how that, you think the road's narrow now. He's God. I mean, He's God. And He has laid out for us in very crystal clear terms what salvation is. And what we need to do is just declare war on all of these silly man-centered notions about flippant, humanistic decisions, prompts. Salvation is not going to prom with Jesus. Mm -mm. It's a wedding. It's a covenant. And here's the beauty. He'll always be faithful. He'll always be trustworthy. He'll always be good. Always. Never let us down, never fail us. Let's stand by our heads. Father, we thank you for helping us tonight, Lord. Helping us first and foremost. We need to be reminded of these truths, Lord. They are a truly a gift from you. And Father God, as we absorb the things that you have said to us, Father, I pray that you will... Use this, use this series, use these evenings together to enable us, God, to spur us forward, to be a people of truth with regard to salvation. Give us a deep and abiding burden for those who are yet unconverted. Father, break our hearts for the verbal and intellectual faith that swirls around us, Lord. Open our eyes to the visible, tangible reality of unchanged lives that profess your name. Father, break our hearts. Break our hearts, Lord. Thank you for being the good and gracious God who has promised that as his children, you promised to conform us into the image of your son. God, thank you. Lord, we repent tonight for how we, how we fight against you sometimes. Lord, we don't see or understand the moving of your hand or the voice of your spirit working in us, Lord. And sometimes we're resistant, even inadvertently against your purposes in our life. God, help us to just yield to you, Lord. Make us ever more sensitive to your voice, God. Lead us, Holy Spirit. Lead us in the way of righteousness, Lord. We want to walk the narrow road in your kingdom. God, freely. And openly, wherever it is you desire to lead us, God, may our heart's desire be to go 
go because that's you that's leading. Thank you, Lord. So, Father, now we just want to respond to you in whatever way that you have called us to, Lord, we'll be obedient to that. In Jesus' name.